I, um, I got one of those emails last week, or Krista got one of those emails last week that, um, that exposed a dark corner of my little sinful heart that I try to hide more often than not, but I don't mind telling you because I know that you've had this experience too. We got an email from some friends of ours who they live out of town and uh, they're, they're good friends and they had just emailed to say, you'll never guess where we're going Friday. It's kind of the spirit of the email. You'll never guess where we're going Friday. And Krista opened it up and it, it turns out that they had been, you know, sorting through some emails and, and you know, one of these marketing promotional emails had come across their inbox and, and when they'd opened it up, there was a, there was a deal in this travel uh, promotional email for cheap flights to Italy. Krista and I went to Italy in 2008, and it is like our favorite place that we've ever visited in the whole world. When we were flying home from Italy, Krista nudged me and said, you know, people in Italy need Jesus too. (laughs) We would love to get back to Italy one day. So we're reading this email, and it turns out, so they saw this deal, had vacation to burn, Their schedule was flexible. They had money lying around. And they decided, what the hey? Let's go to Italy on Friday. And I read the email and I thought, you have got to be kidding me. What I wouldn't give to be them. You know that feeling, right? Like you you look at somebody's life, you look at somebody's what they've got going on, and you look at them and think, your life is amazing. What I wouldn't give to be you. You know, you you look at at somebody's abilities, and you say, I'd love to be good at whatever you're good at. Or you look at somebody's possessions, or you look at somebody's, how much money they have, or you look at their job, and you think, I would love to do your job. Or you, you look at their family, and you look at the fact that their kids aren't wild and out of control. You think, I'd love to have your kids. You want mine? You know, it's just like you, you look at somebody's life, and you think, man, I wouldn't, what I wouldn't give to have your life, because your life just seems awesome. Your life is the, is the life that I wish I could have. I was thinking about it, you know, as I was preparing to, uh, you know, to give this talk this weekend, because as we turn to Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning, starting in verse 1, as we pick up this, our study in the book of Matthew, that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is speaking into, not envying other people's lives and then having to repent of it later, but the kind of life that you've always wanted, and what that life Looks like So if you brought a Bible this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. If you've been around, you know that we've been in this on-again, off-again relationship with, with the book of Matthew since um, back in the fall. And we intend to continue studying the book of Matthew in chunks until like 2032. So, you know, get comfortable with, with the book of Matthew. But turn to Matthew chapter 5. We left off in March at the end of Matthew chapter 4. 
At the moment where Jesus was just launching his public career as an itinerant preacher and a prophet for God. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says this. It says, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria. Oh, God, that news about Jesus would spread all over Syria. Wow. Um... And it says, people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and those suffering severe pain and the demon possessed and those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. You know, Jesus is just launching this, this public ministry of proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, of basically announcing that God's power was breaking into the world and that God was going to bring healing and hope and restoration back to a world that was filled with uh, death and destruction and darkness and chaos and sin and that God was bringing light and life and hope and peace and healing and justice to the world again. And it wasn't just this message that Jesus was giving. Jeff talked to us about this you know, a month and a half ago, that it was Jesus was doing some show and tell. Because he wasn't just proclaiming the kingdom, he was demonstrating it. He was putting it on display with his life. Everywhere that people's lives were racked with pain and chaos and sin and brokenness and destruction, Jesus was stepping in and bringing life and hope and healing and wholeness and peace. And he was saying the whole time, you see, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what happens when God's goodness is allowed to break into the world and it's coming and it's coming now and it's coming through me. And, and Jesus' message and his ministry just captured the imagination of the whole country of Israel. In fact, it says in Matthew 4.25 that large crowds from Galilee, which is um, way up in the north of Israel, and, and the Decapolis, which is northeast of Israel, and Jerusalem and Judea, which is the south, and the region all across the Jordan, which is the east. Large crowds from all over the place, were, when, when they heard, um, they followed him. When they heard what Jesus was doing, they saw what he was doing. When they, when they began to experience the kingdom, they followed Jesus. And said, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to them, and he began to teach them. Jesus saw the crowds gathering, and it says he went up on a mountainside, which is kind of the ancient equivalent to a stage or a platform, and it says that he sat down, which is the ancient equivalent of pulling up a stool in a music stand and putting on a microphone, and he began to teach them about life in the kingdom of God. And the very first word out of Jesus' mouth in Matthew 5, verse 3, the very first word out of Jesus' mouth as he's teaching them about life in the kingdom of God is the word blessed. Blessed. The word in Greek is the word makarios. And it's not an overly religious word. In fact, it's a word that really at a basic level just means lucky or Fortunate. It's the kind of word that I would have used to describe, you know, our friends in this email saying, man, they are blessed. They're makarios for being able to do this. It's the kind of word you use to describe people who really have got it good, who've really got it going on. It's the kind of word the Greeks used to describe the life of the gods. 
The gods were blessed because they never had to work and they never suffered and they didn't have a care and they didn't have a worry in the world. And so the lives of people who seemed to not really have to work and not suffer and who never had a care or a worry in the world, those lives were blessed because the gods were smiling on them. In the ancient world, um, well, in the modern world too, there's an island off the shore of Greece called the island of Cyprus. In the ancient world, they used to call it the blessed island. Because if you lived on Cyprus, right there on that island, you had everything that you needed for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, the residents of the island of Cyprus did not have to leave Cyprus for anything that they needed. They never had to import any stuff into, onto the island. They never had to go you know, to the mainland to get stuff. They, they had everything that they needed right there. All the natural resources, all of the food, all the beauty, all the abundance, all the life, all the culture. They had everything they needed right there on this island and so they called it the blessed isle the Makarios island because to live there was surely a life that was blessed because you had everything you could ever need now I, I should say some translations of the bible translate that word happy and really Makarios doesn't mean happy it's, it's more of a description objectively looking in from the outside of somebody's circumstances than it is describing the experience of somebody going through those circumstances. So, um, you know, was there any, ever anybody on the island of Cyprus who wasn't happy to be living on Cyprus? Well, of course there was. You know, think of the teenage boy living with his parents who wants to be anywhere but Cyprus. Let me move to Athens and get a job and be a part of the big city and, you know, He's not happy, but he's blessed. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with someone from the outside looking in and acknowledging that you're circumstance, that you're fortunate to be experiencing what you're experiencing. You know, it's the, the person who says, you know what, I know it's hard right now, but you're lucky you just lost your job because this, that, and the other thing. And you think, well, I don't feel lucky to have just lost my job. But if you take a step back from the outside, there may be reasons why you're actually blessed even though it doesn't feel like it. Now, if you know somebody who's lost their job, don't ever say to them, you're lucky that you lost. It's a dumb thing to say. But you understand what I'm saying. It's, it's not about being happy. It's about from the outside looking in and seeing somebody's life that's blessed. I think the fact that the first word that Jesus says about life in the kingdom of God, life in relationship with God, is blessed, tells us nearly everything that we need to know about God's hopes for us, about his dreams for us, about his plans for us, about his desires for us as individuals and as a community and as a planet, God's hope for all of creation, that God, blessed and not cursed, is what it's like to live life in the kingdom of God. It's what you experience when the God of the universe smiles down on you. When he fills your life and your spirit with good things. It's what it's like to let the goodness of God flow into your life. And so the question is, who are the people who are blessed? Who are the people who get to experience this blessed life? Well, Matthew 5, 3, Jesus goes on. He doesn't just say blessed. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says. Now there are two words in Greek uh, that both mean poor. The one word describes people who live with you know, rather severe economic challenges and disadvantages. Describes the life of people who are living paycheck to paycheck, going day to day. You know, the, the people who scramble to make ends meet at the end of every single month. People who are working their tails off, two and three jobs just to eke out a, a hard scrabble existence. People who, who can make it work. You know, sometimes, you know, the kind of people who um, are receiving government assistance, whose life works in part because they're getting a hand up, like just people who are making it work but just barely and there's certainly nothing left over to set aside for a rainy day. Those people, the Greeks say, are poor. But that's not the word that Jesus uses. He doesn't use the word that describes people who have nothing left over for a rainy day. The word Jesus uses is the word that describes people who just have nothing and for whom every day is raining. The people who don't qualify for government assistance. The people who literally don't know where their next meal is going to come from. The people for whom uh, the pangs of hunger have become a simple fact of life. The people who literally have nothing. The, the, the word that Jesus used describes the poor that the poor call poor. If you have something then this is not what Jesus is. Jesus is not describing you because the people Jesus is describing are people who have no thing. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's a word that's used to describe people who are beat up and beat down, people who are weak and gaunt and needy, the people who um, literally have nothing. Blessed are the poor. But he goes on, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In spirit. The qualifier makes me think that Jesus is describing more than just physical circumstances. He's describing the, the internal realities that go along with literally having nothing. The sense of defeat and depression. The helplessness and the hopelessness. The, the sense of inadequacy and the fear that become a part of the regular routine of life, when you are overmatched by your circumstances, when you are in over your head, when you are helpless and hopeless, and you can literally do nothing about your circumstances, when you are, frankly, you've got nothing. You are out of ideas, you are out of options, you are out of gas, and you're out of hope. You literally have nothing. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to be completely at the mercy of life, with absolutely no way to help yourself. You've, you've been there before. Or someone you love deeply has been there before, or maybe you're there right now. Battling this disease that has you pinned down and won't let you get up. Battling this depression that absolutely refuses to lift. Battling an addiction that you just can't overcome. Battling against some moral failure or some sin that you just can't seem to be. It's living 
you know, staring down the long barrel of financial ruin that you can no longer avoid. It's watching the decay of a relationship that you can no longer put back together. It is a rumor that gets out of control, that destroys your reputation. It is forces beyond your control that destroy your career. It is a loved one who's out of control, who destroys your family. And you're overmatched by life and you're in over your head and you are helpless and you're hopeless and you have got nothing. You've got no ideas, no gas, no options, no hope, nothing. Completely bankrupt. Jesus says, when you're in that place, well, then the kingdom of God is good news to you. Then you really are blessed. <laughs> it's not the story our culture tells. You know, in our, in our culture, the people who are blessed are the people who have it all together, the people whose lives are, are put together, the people who've got it going on, the people we admire and envy, the people in our world that we honor are the strong and the capable and the wealthy and the pretty and the we admire people and honor people who've got it going on you know we we're compelled by um by powerful leadership you know for the last year our some many in our country have been enamored by Justin Trudeau this charming eloquent good-looking well-pedigreed um politician that many people think is going to lead our country into another golden era those are the people whose lives are blessed we admire those with resources you know Bill Gates and and Warren Buffett self-made billionaires who through hard work and perseverance did it their way beat the system and succeeded against the odds we Admire people who have the ability like Usain Bolt. We admire people who have the brains like Stephen Hawking. We admire people who are good enough and strong enough and capable enough and solid enough. People who have been able to to put their lives together. People who've got it going on. We look at their lives and we say, that kind of life is blessed. In fact, that's why that's who we're trying to become. We spend most of our energy trying to get our lives together, trying to make something of ourselves, trying to be good enough and smart enough and strong enough and capable enough to solve our own problems and to get our life on the tracks, on the rails, to build a life where we're you know, physically healthy and emotionally strong and financially comfortable and socially popular and personally admired and professionally accomplished and on and on the list goes we want to be someone who's made something of ourselves so that we can live a life that is blessed and you know what Jesus says those aren't the people who are blessed the people who have got it all together the blessed are the people who are falling apart who have got absolutely nothing left For he says at the end of Matthew 5 verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs. In in the Greek, the word theirs is in the emphatic first position, which means that what Jesus was trying to emphasize is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit and not to those whose lives are put together, to the healthy and wealthy and strong and successful and capable and independent. Jesus says, no, no, no. The reason... 
those who are in over their head, the helpless and the hopeless and those who have nothing, the reason those folks are blessed is because it is to them that the kingdom of heaven comes. I should say that when Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, heaven, he doesn't mean heaven like what we think about heaven when we use the word heaven. Matthew isn't referring to the place that you go after your death. Matthew is referring to the experience of the healing, restoring, saving power of God breaking into your life while you're still alive. He actually steals the the phrase from Isaiah the prophet who talked a lot about the kingdom of God and what he meant by the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven what Isaiah meant was simply what would happen in this world if God were to finally just kick the door down and burst on the scene and grab a hold of the steering wheel and steer the world in the direction that he always wanted it to go what would happen to this world if God were allowed to finally be in charge and Isaiah says I'll tell you exactly what would happen God would save this world from itself 14 times when talking about the kingdom of heaven, Isaiah says that it'll be a place of peace. In Hebrew, of shalom, which is more than just no more fighting. It's a place of flourishing and abundance and wholeness and healing. Well, actually seven times Isaiah, he says it's a place of healing. 12 times Isaiah says the kingdom of God is a place of joy. Nine times Isaiah says the kingdom of God is a place of intimacy with God. 16 times Isaiah says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a place of justice and wholeness and fairness and rightness. Where everything is the way everything is supposed to be. And Jesus says blessed are those who are beat down by life and who know that they've got no other options and have no idea what else to do except to cry out to God because they can no longer help themselves. Because in the lives of those people, Isaiah says, God will show up in all of his saving peace-bringing, healing, joy-giving, justice-bringing, intimacy-creating power, and they will experience the kingdom of heaven, the healing and wholeness and restoration of what it is to live life with God. It's not heaven, it is heaven on earth experiencing the floodgates of the goodness of God opened up in your life to the point where it is undeniable that you are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what you dragged in here today. What you were carrying on your shoulders when you came in here today. I don't know what's been weighing you down. Maybe this is exactly where you are in life. In over your head. Out of ideas. Out of options. Out of gas. Out of hope. Helpless and hopeless. Defeated and depressed. You just have nothing. Jesus says, throw yourself at the mercy of God. 
Stop trying to make something of your life. Stop trying to fix your own problems. Stop trying to be good enough and strong enough and work hard enough and be capable enough to fix what's broken. Just throw yourself before God and beg him to pour his healing, peace-bringing, joy-giving, intimacy-creating, life-giving, justice-creating, kingdom power into your life. And what you will experience is not necessarily God answering all of your prayers the way that you would pray them. But what you will experience is the floodgates of heaven open and God will pour his goodness out on you until you will look at yourself and say, I am blessed. Even when it's hard. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you what, what my problem is most of the time? My problem most of the time is that I'm not poor in spirit. It's that I live most of my life without a sense an inner conviction of my desperate need for God. I live most of my life without being driven by the belief that I can do nothing on my own. How many times did Jesus say that in the book of John for those who just read through it? I can do nothing on my own. Jesus lived in a sense of poverty of spirit. He knew that he had nothing. I don't live that way. I've been inoculated by my life against really being poor in spirit. I've been inoculated by my circumstances. I have too much and I have it too good to feel like, I'm, like I really need God desperately. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, I think, was talking to someone who was just like me, someone who's like many of us. Because in, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is talking to a, a community of faith, a church like ours that was filled with people who were wealthy and healthy and fashionable and who were cultural movers and shakers and people who had in their culture at their fingertips everything that they needed for life and, and for happiness and for comfort and enjoyment and whatever. And Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, he says, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, our the vastness of our wealth has that effect on us is that we end up, because we have so much, we end up feeling like we don't need God for anything. And Jesus says to them, but you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I beg you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich spiritually. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Salve to put on your eyes so that you can finally see. Jesus says, listen, you have so much that you don't even realize how much you need me. Beg God to show you the reality of your condition before him so that you sense you're desperate, wretched, pitiful. You're so wealthy that you become blind to how poor and naked you are. You have so much you can't even see how much you need. My circumstances, my, my self-assessment has inoculated me from really feeling like I need God. In Luke 18 it says, To some 
who were confident in their own righteousness, their own goodness, and who looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a church leader like me, and the other was a tax collector, you know, a mafioso. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. So a man who went to the temple and because he spent his life comparing himself to all the people around him, he came to the conclusion that he was actually not doing too bad. You know, last week we, we talked you know, to the people who walk around with a, the, a failing report card in their pocket where they're constantly failing themselves in their relationship with God. And we addressed that. This, this guy is the exact opposite. He, he walks around with a spiritual report card in his pocket and he looks around at everybody else and he keeps giving himself A pluses. He says, you know what, I'm a, pretty, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I'm a devoted husband and I'm a decent dad and I'm a hardworking employee and I'm an upstanding citizen. I'm a loyal friend. I'm a faithful church attender. I'm a committed volunteer. I'm a generous giver. Look at me. I'm not, I'm not doing too bad for myself. And when we live this kind of spirit or we live in this kind of atmosphere where we have so much and we think so highly of ourselves that we genuinely don't see our need for God, then do you know what? We don't ever get to experience the blessedness of life in the kingdom of God. What it's like for the, that power of God's goodness and healing and hope and peace and so on to break into our lives and to make our lives truly blessed. We live with this we live out a conviction that we don't really need God and so we end up living like we don't really need God two weeks ago this morning right right now right at this time Krista and I were in our minivan with our four kids driving through Orlando Florida on our way home after a, a vacation the time that we had spent down there together as a family and what lay ahead of us was, was daunting. I mean, not just the drive. We were going to drive through the night, which meant we knew we were only going to get a couple hours sleep, and that was reality. And, and we just knew that that was true. So, you know, in the van for 23 hours with four little girls in the back. And like that. But that was just step one. When we got home, we as a family faced the most hectic, intimidating, busy week that we'd probably had in years. We, we were both coming back. When we arrived home, we were coming back to work a week full of 15-hour days. Krista going back to the hospital and working her shift work and me coming to the church. And that week, I was going to teach Tuesday night and Wednesday night doing the Bible study seminars. And Thursday night, I was going to pre-record last Sunday's message. And our kids had five different babysitters in six nights. I mean, we just had so much stuff going on. And I personally wasn't prepared for most of what I had to do and so on. And I was just feeling overwhelmed and intimidated and everything was just kind of piling up. I had 150 emails in my inbox and I just, I was not ready to, for what was waiting for me when I got back home and when I woke up Tuesday morning I was lying in bed and I looked up at the ceiling and I said God this week I really need you and do you know what I heard God say in my spirit God said what you just told me is that 99% of the time you don't think you really need me and it's true 99% of the time I live my life as though I'll be just fine. Thank you very much. I've got it, God. I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. I'm 
smart enough, I'm capable enough, I can handle it. The only times that I really act as though I desperately need God is in those moments when it's all piled up until it's so high and then I turn to God and ask him if he can give me a little nudge to get me over the hump. And as long as that's how I live, without this poverty of spirit that knows that I genuinely have nothing and I desperately need God for everything to do something in my life that I couldn't do for myself, so long as I live that way, I sacrifice the blessedness of life in the kingdom. I will never know what it's like to experience the inbreaking of God's peace, bringing joy, giving, healing, intimacy, creating justice, living power of the kingdom of heaven, the heaven on earth that it is to live in a genuine relationship of dependence on God. Maybe that's you this morning. That you're here and your life has been bouncing along and you've been one of the lucky ones. Because so far everything's kind of been just rolling along and you're the person everybody looks to and says, I wish I had their life. And if you were to be honest, you'd say, you've been living to, to keep your life put together and you don't really often feel like you need God. I want to give you a moment to confess that to God, to just to bring that to him, to carry that to God and say, God, would you please help me come to terms with my desperate need for you? You know, instead of closing in prayer, as I regularly do, I want to give you the chance to close in prayer for yourself. If you're here this morning and you are in over your head and you know that you have nothing and you need God to do something for you that you can't do for yourself, I want you to come this morning to God in the silence that I'm gonna give you in just a minute as the band comes to the stage. I, I want you to come before God and say, God, I am done. I'm done with trying to put my life together. I'm done with trying to be strong enough and smart enough and capable enough and clever enough and good enough to make my life work. I got nothing. Would you please do for me what I can't do for myself? Would you unleash the power of the kingdom of heaven in me? And just bring that burden and unload it on God but, and feel the good news that you can be set free from all of that. But if you're here this morning and you've been living the life, that you've been living as though what it means to have a blessed life is to have your life put together, I want you to come before God this morning and I want you to give him everything that you've been counting on to make your life awesome. Maybe for you it's it's reputation. You've been living for how you've been perceived by others and I just want you to lay it before God and say, God, it doesn't matter to me anymore how people perceive me. I don't want to be something. I want to be nothing so that you can be everything. Maybe it's your agenda that you need to lay before God and say, God, I'm tired of trying to be something. I want to be nothing so that you can be everything. Maybe it's your ego. Maybe it's the whole issue of possessions and saying, God, I'm, I try, I'm tired of accumulating things. I don't care if I have nothing. I want you to be everything. 
Maybe it's your strength that you need to lay down or your ability. This is your moment to just come to God and say, God, I'm tired of trying to be something. Teach me to be nothing so that you can be my everything. Whatever business you need to do with God, do it now.